We're going to continue the series that we've been in uh, for a few weeks. It's called The Outsider. It comes from Ruth chapter 2. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Ruth chapter 2. If you have an electronic copy of the Bible, you can turn uh, in, in that copy to Ruth 2. And if you would just bear with me again, and if you'd look on either side of the room, there are four banners. And I know I, I mentioned this to you last week. I'd like for you to look again that there are four banners on either side of the room. And those banners represent our understanding of what the spiritual growth process, uh, what spiritual development looks like. And I want you to notice that they culminate in that phrase, change the city, change the city. And the reason is that we believe that Evansville is a city in crisis. And the crisis uh, manifests itself. Well, ultimately, it's a spiritual crisis, but it manifests itself in everything from teen suicides to addictions to crystal meth production and sale and uh, use and divorce and affairs and moralistic self-righteousness, among other things. And as we think about um, becoming agents of change to the city of Evansville, and obviously we want to move beyond the city of Evansville. It's not just the city. We want to go beyond that. But as, as we think about becoming people that God would use to change the city, Ruth... Chapter 2 speaks to us about how to become the kind of people that God would use to rescue a city in crisis, or for that matter, a neighborhood in crisis, or a family in crisis, uh, or a person in crisis. Ruth chapter 2 speaks to us about how to become those kinds of people. Now, what I want to do is I, I want to I do something a little different today. I'm going to give you one big point. I mean, over the last few weeks, I've kind of given you a number of different points. But today, I just have one big point, but I'm going to feed it to you in three small phrases. And I'll explain each one of those phrases as we go. So let me just give you a brief review for those of you who may not have been with us throughout this series. Uh, Ruth is the Gentile daughter-in-law of a Jewish woman by the name of Naomi who has experienced uh, bitter sorrow. She's experienced enormous tragedy while... Her family was sojourning in a foreign land called Moab. They were there in Moab because of a famine in Israel. But while they were sojourning there, her husband and then her two adult sons die. And they leave Naomi and they leave Ruth and they leave another daughter-in-law, widows. And they leave them childless and they leave them penniless as well. Naomi, after all of that, decides that she's going to return to Israel. One of her daughters-in-law goes with her. Uh, her name is Ruth, and one of the daughters-in-law stays in Moab. But Ruth makes this enormous uh, promise, this enormous commitment to go with Naomi. And no matter when, no matter no matter how long Naomi is there, and and no matter if Naomi dies there, Ruth is going to be with her, and Na- Ruth is going to worship Naomi's God, the God of Israel. When they return to Israel. They arrive, the text tells us, just at the time of the barley harvest. In order to keep them from starving, Ruth suggests that she go, that she, Ruth, goes, and that she gleans in the harvest, she gleans from the harvest of some of the landowners in Israel. It's a dangerous suggestion. Landowners weren't always, even though the law required them to be, landowners weren't always gracious about that kind of thing. She could be beaten by landowners. She could be raped by some of the workers in the field. And yet Ruth still, in spite of the risk to her own safety, says, I'll go and I'll do that because we've got to survive. 
When we pick up the story in verse 4, Ruth has, the text said, just happened to arrive at the fields of a relative of her deceased husband, a man by the name of Boaz. Let's pick up the reading in verse 4. And we're going to read quite a bit here all at one time. Chapter 2, and we're going to start reading from verse 4. And we'll read through verse 19. Just then, just then, just when they arrived, just when, just when she had arrived at his field, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. He said, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? And the foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab. That's a little redundant, isn't it? She's the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field. She's worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Verse 11, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people that you did not know before. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I don't have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some, have some bread, dip it in the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until the evening and then she threshed the barley that she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah and she carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered and Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. And I'll let you read the rest of the chapter. But in the rest of the chapter, Naomi offers, uh, she she affirms Ruth's, Ruth's choice of fields. And she points out that Boaz, as we had said last week, is one of their kinsmen redeemers. And I explained to you last week what that meant. Okay, the question is, how do we become the kind of people that God would use to rescue a city in crisis? Or perhaps rescue a neighborhood or other people or friends or family who are in crisis? Let let me just start with this phrase, okay? Remember, I'm going to make one big point, three phrases. And here's the first phrase. Just let me say it this way, that heroes are people who forget about themselves. Let's start there. Heroes are people who forget about themselves. The two heroes in this book are Ruth and Boaz. Ruth is the hero to Naomi, who 
I don't know if you've noticed, but she seems to be so bitter and so depressed. She almost seems incapacitated. Did you notice that Ruth is the one who comes up with the idea of how to provide for them? She says, I'm gonna go, I'll go out to the field and, and harvest. And Ruth is the one who's doing the harvesting. Notice Naomi is not doing any of the harvesting. It's not because Naomi is so old that she can't do it. It's because she's so depressed. I mean, she, she just seems incapacitated. We wonder, in fact, as we read this passage, what in the world Naomi would do if God had not provided Ruth for her. We made the point last week that Ruth had abandoned every security that you would expect a young woman in this culture, even in our culture. She'd abandoned every security that you would think that she would have clung to for herself. Like, Like, as far as she knows, she will never have a family again because she has followed Naomi back to Israel. She's an outsider in a land of people who hate Moab's or excuse me, Moabites. And so as far as she knows, she's never going to be married again, never have a family. But she was willing to abandon that for the sake of Naomi. On the other hand, Boaz here is a, well, he's a hero too. He's a hero to Ruth. You got Ruth being a hero to Naomi. You got Boaz being a hero to Ruth. And and you even see glimpses of of what's coming in the future with Boaz. You even see that here in this text. He offers protection to Ruth, uh, he tells his men not to touch her, not to harm her. He tells them not to embarrass her. Um, he allows her to glean even among the best of his crops, you know, even among the sheaves, he says. What I want you to see here is that neither of these two heroes of this story seem to be thinking about themselves. Did you notice that? Ruth is so busy rescuing Naomi that she doesn't have time to think about her own dreams or safety. And Boaz, on his, for his sake, I mean, for his, uh, on his side, is so busy caring for and protecting Ruth that he doesn't even have time to think about himself. And I want you to think for just a minute about how unique that is that two people would be so busy thinking about other people that they don't have time to think about themselves. A number of years ago, there was this, some of you guys will remember this, there was this advertising campaign where they were trying to encourage people to drive safely. And the tagline for the advertising campaign went like this. You'll remember this. It said, drive safely because the life you save may just be what? Your own. Remember that? Drive safely because the life you save may just be your own. Here's my question. Why didn't they say, drive safely because the life you save may just be some other poor slobs? Why, Why didn't they say that? Why? It wouldn't have been nearly as motivating, would it? The idea that you might be saving someone else. It's like, I want to know that I might be saving myself. That's why they, that's why they did that advertising campaign in the way they did it. Because that was more motivating. Self-interest. Na- the natural condition of the human ego is to be consumed with self. It's to think about me. Self-interest. To be absorbed with self. The Bible says it this way, that we are lovers of self. Not, with a, like, not in a healthy kind of self-confidence kind of way, but in a self-absorbed, slaves to self-interest, always looking out for myself kind of way. That's what the Bible says, that we are all slaves to self. And this is what's wrong with the world that we live in. Right? Because we're slaves to self. That's it. It's why racism exists. It's why segregation exists. It's why class warfares exist. It's why there are abuses of power. It's why, the, it's why Bernie Madoffs uh, happen. It's why a Bashar al-Assad would use chemical weapons on his own people. It's what's wrong with the world. We are consumed with ourselves. It's, wrong, it's what's wrong with the city of Evansville, too. 
is that we are a city full of people who are consumed with, obsessed with ourselves. The people God uses, heroes like the two heroes of this particular passage, Ruth and Boaz, city changers, neighborhood changers, family changers. The people that God uses are the kind of people who forget about themselves so that they can rescue uh, other people. They're neither so consumed with themselves that they don't care about other people and the problems that other people have. They're not so consumed with themselves that they don't care, but also they're not so consumed with themselves that they rescue other people just to make themselves look good or feel good. To build up their sort of spiritual resume. You know, there are people like that in the world. There are people whose, who, there are people whose philanthropy uh, or volunteering is motivated by nothing more than self-interest. But the people that God uses... You know, the heroes, the, the, the real city changers, the real neighborhood changers, the real family changers are the people who simply forget about themselves. And you, may, you know, you're probably asking, well, how in the world could a person ever forget about themselves? If the natural condition of the human ego is to be so consumed with self, how do you ever get to a place that you could simply just forget about yourself? Okay, so remember now, one big point, three phrases. Here's the second phrase, okay? How do you get to a place that you just forget about yourself? Well, heroes are people who simply forget about themselves. Here's the second phrase. Because they have been so liberated by a consuming affection for God. That's the second phrase. Heroes are people who forget about themselves because they have been so liberated by a consuming affection Affection for God. Okay, now don't tune me out here because what I'm going to say, what I'm going to say next, it, 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 it'll change your world if you understand this. Okay, 250 years ago. Now, I know as soon as I say 250 years ago, some of you are like, well, that couldn't possibly have any relevance today. It does. Listen to this. About 250 years ago, there was a Scottish minister and a, and a theological uh, professor. Uh, his name is Thomas Chalmers, and he wrote a sermon, and the sermon was called, he preached a sermon, it was called The Expulsive Power of a new affection, the expulsive power of a new affection. That's a very famous sermon. I don't just go around reading 250-year-old uh, sermons. This was, this was a very famous sermon. And the idea in the sermon, the expulsive power of a new affection, here was the main idea, the main thesis of the sermon was this, that the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on your soul is to show your soul an object even more beautiful. Okay, so the only way to break so, so the only way to break the hold that some object has on your soul is to show it some object even more beautiful. In other words, like if you have some behavior or there's some object in your life or some goal that you have in life that has completely consumed you. In other words, it's, it'd be like having an addiction to that for some period of time. If you have some addiction of some kind, he would have used the word attachment, but today would use the word addiction. He would say, you can't stop it by just willpower uh, because your imagination has been captured by this thing and so now your will is enslaved to it so you can't just say no. So he says, the answer to temptation is not just, he called it negation. In other words, not just self-discipline and saying no to something. 
He says that the answer to temptation, the answer to addiction, the answer to obsession with something is spiritual passion. He says you have to fall in love with somebody, and that somebody has a capital S. You have to fall in love with somebody who is so much more beautiful than the present object of your affection that has its hold on your soul. If you, if you want to break, right now the thing that has, one of the things that has a hold of your soul that you think is so beautiful that you can't possibly let it go, that you are so consumed with, is you. And that's true if you have a bad, if you have a bad self-image or if you have a good self-image, you are still consumed with you. And what Chalmers would say is that if you want to become a hero, if you want to become a Ruth, a Boaz, if you want to become a city changer... You have to develop a consuming love, a consuming affection for God. Not just, now listen to this. This is what I want you to get. Not just a fear of breaking God's rules because, you know, if I break God's rules, he's going he's to crush me. He's going to hurt me in some way. Not a fear. Not just the fear of, of you know, I don't want to go to hell, so I, I, better, I better do what God says. Fear isn't... isn't isn't going to break that obsession that you have with self. He would say, you must develop a consuming love, affection for God. That's the only way to break the hold of self-absorption on the soul. And I want you to know, that's the only way to explain the actions of the two heroes in this text, Ruth and Boaz. And I think you see it in this text. If you notice, as soon as Boaz, as soon as he showed up on the scene, the text went to some pain to tell us that he was consumed by the Lord and the things of the Lord. I don't know if you noticed or not. But the first thing that he said to his workers, first thing he said was, hey, guys, the Lord be with you. And then their response back to him was, the Lord bless you. Now, look, I realize that in, today, you know, in today's day and age, there are some religious people that might say that kind of stuff just as spiritual platitude kind of stuff, just to... Uh, just kind of as a throwaway line to impress people with their spirituality. That is not the way they did it back then. That is not the case. The text wants us to see that Boaz is a man who is so saturated by God that his affection for God has even penetrated to the level of his business practices. In other words, his relationship with his employees is just completely shot through with God. And they respond to him in kind. You want to, know how, you want to know how consumed the person is with God? Watch how they do their work. Watch how they conduct their, their, their work. How they approach their job. The text, is, the text wants us to know that Boaz is not a man who's consumed by fear of God in the sense that he's afraid that if he doesn't do what, you know, if he doesn't do what God wants him to do, that somehow... You know, he's, he's going to be condemned. He's not a man that's walking around with a long face and a stoic face. He's like, guys, the Lord bless you and, and, and the Lord be with you. And, and they're saying, Boaz, the Lord bless you too, because they, they love this man. Notice how he responds to Ruth's question. She, she asks him, she says, she says, why have I found favor in your eyes? And he says to her, he tells her, he says, look, I've heard of your devotion to the Lord and your devotion to your uh, mother-in-law. And I want you to listen to the description that he gives of God. Is this a man who sounds like he's, he's, 
he's fearful and that he's always worried of condemnation? Or does this sound like a man who has been saturated by God? Listen to this. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, I would argue that Boaz describes God as a generous, uh, gracious provider who longs to bless and who longs to take Ruth under his wings and to care for her and to protect her. That's the kind of man that Boaz is. He's saturated with an affection for God. Notice that nowhere in the text does Boaz strut around and boast to his employees about how lucky they are to have him as a boss. And, and, and he doesn't, notice he doesn't strut around and tell Ruth how lucky she is that she found him because he's such a great businessman. No, he, he, everywhere in the text, Boaz is pointing his workers and he's pointing Ruth uh, to God. And he says, look at, look at him, look at him. He's the one, look at him. The Lord be with you. And then there's Ruth. We know, uh, as I've said from earlier in the story, that this is a woman who was willing to abandon everything that she would be expected to care for, to worship Naomi's God. Even in her plan to to work in the fields, she said, said, in spite of the risk, she, she says, maybe I'll find favor in someone's field. In other words, what she's saying is, I'm willing to risk on the grace of God that he will lead me to someone who will be as generous as he is. My, my point is this, is that both, both Boaz and Ruth are people who, at least in this moment, have been liberated from self-absorption by a consuming affection for one that they have, for one that is more beautiful than themselves, so that they simply don't think about themselves. Now, you don't understand how that can happen. Okay, watch. Think about this. Just imagine this for a moment. Imagine that you're standing in line someplace. You're standing in line somewhere, and you are just, like you've been waiting, and you're tired of standing in line, and you're frustrated about the fact that you've been waiting. And, like, why would they make you wait? Because you've got a schedule, man, to keep. You've got other things to do, and you're just kind of frustrated about the fact that you're having to wait in line, Right? All of a sudden, someone points out that the person that's standing right in front of you is him or her. You know, some celebrity that you have read about or watched or heard all of your life. And you're just like, oh, that is like one of your favorite people. This person is so unbelievably famous. And suddenly there you are and there they are. And you say to them, you go, I like your work. And they turn around to you. And they say, thank you very much. And all of a sudden, you and this celebrity have a little conversation among the two of you. All of a sudden, what happens? Time begins to fly, doesn't it? In fact, don't you, just because you're in the line, just talking to the celebrity, don't, doesn't this horrible burden of having to wait, um, doesn't that just stop, to hap- just stop happening? Don't you, don't you just stop feeling that horrible burden? In fact, don't you even kind of begin to think, man, I hope the line doesn't move because I'm really digging this conversation between me and this person. What's happening? What's happening? You get so caught up in your affection for this person that you don't even care about your own inconvenience anymore. You don't even think about your own schedule. 
Because you've been so consumed, you've become so consumed with this person. That is what Thomas Chalmers was talking about when he, when he, when he said the expulsive power of a new affection. All of a sudden in that moment, your absorption with yourself changes because you've been caught up in someone that is greater and more beautiful than you. Heroes, the kind of people who become city changers and family chamber changers and, and neighborhood changers are people who've been liberated from self-absorption by a consuming affection for a God who is so much more beautiful than they are and so much greater than they are. That it's like, I don't even think about myself anymore. Because I know if I've got you, I've got everything. I, I know, what, like, if you're in control, if I've got you, you're in control of everything in my life. I don't even need to worry about it anymore. And so I can just stop being so consumed with me. Okay, so heroes are people who forget about themselves because they've been, become so consumed by their affection for God. Here's the third phrase, last phrase, okay? They've become so liberated by consuming affection for God, here it is, that his character has eclipsed their own. That his character has eclipsed their own. Now, let's just put that whole thing together again, just one time so you can see it all together. Heroes are people who forget about themselves because they've been so liberated by a consuming affection for God that his character has eclipsed their own. Uh, This is said in another way in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the apostle Paul says it this way. He says, I no longer live. In other words, the self-consumed ego, I, I no longer live but Christ lives in me. In other words, in other words, the old self-consumed Paul has been eclipsed by the self-giving character of God. I want you to understand this uh, about this text that neither Boaz or Ruth were born with this kind of an affection for God. Under, you know, I, I told you last week that Ruth was born in a culture of idol worshipers, which is why I think the text keeps reminding us that she's a Moab from uh, that she's a Moabitess from Moab. It goes to great detail to remind us that her origin wasn't, she, she didn't come from Israel. She wasn't a God worshiper to begin with. She was a, a pagan idolater to begin with. And Boaz, as we talked about last week, was the son of a prostitute. But somewhere along the line, perhaps, I don't know, maybe precisely because of the bleakness of their own backgrounds, Both of these people have become so consumed with the beauty of God's character that over time, his character has eclipsed their own self-centered, self-absorbed character. Now, I'm not saying saying that either one of these people is perfect. You know, 15 minutes after this particular episode happened, I have no idea. You know, they might have been in some great, huge, self-absorbed moment for all I know. I just know that in this moment in time, their natural self-absorption was eclipsed by God's self-giving character. The text says that that Boaz uh, was willing. He didn't turn Ruth away. Um, 
And he didn't merely show her mercy. In fact, he goes beyond what the law requires of him. And he demonstrates grace to her. And, and he, says, he says to his guys, he says, let her glean among the sheaves. I mean, let her get the best of the harvest. And he shows her God's abundant generosity by pouring out his generosity on Ruth. Now, let me ask you something. The text, you guys will remember that the text said that there had been a famine in Israel for a long time. My point is this, that it's the first year probably in a long time that Boaz has been able to make a profit. What would you have done if you were Boaz and somebody, an immigrant comes along and asks you for money when you've already got a full payroll? What would you have said? Just from a natural human self-absorption standpoint, I bet you you would have said, sorry, um, try somebody else's field. But Boaz says, yeah, come on in. And he says, he says you, can, you can pick from the, from the best of the harvest. Now, I know that some of you think, we, we wanna, here's what we want to do with this story. We want to make this a big uh, romance story. If we want to think that Boaz saw Ruth and she was like really hot and he's like, oh man, uh, I'll do anything and yeah, I'll give it to you. Let me tell you, that's our culture. That's reading our culture into this story. In that culture, romance usually came after marriage. Uh, Marriage was usually either arranged or somehow two people were legally obligated to get married. Romance came later. I want you to understand that Boaz didn't do this for self-serving reasons. Boaz was willing to give because he had been so saturated by the generosity of God. And for... In Ruth's case, you know, I look... Whatever she was back in Moab, I don't know. She may have been the valedictorian of her class. She may have been Miss Moab. I I don't know. whatever, Whatever she was... She claims no entitlement in this passage. Uh, She shows no pridefulness. She's willing to work and willing to work hard. When Boaz shows her favor, do you notice what she says? She says, why? Why have you done this? Not, well, of course, (laughs) look at me. I'm Ruth. I'm incredibly hot. I was Miss Moab and the valedictorian in my class. Of course you would show me this kind of favor. She doesn't say that. She says, why? Why would you do this? In other words, I'm a nobody. I'm an outsider. I'm a Moabitess. I don't deserve this, which is always the right response to grace. Would you agree? See, even in Ruth, we get not this natural self-centered pride, but we get humility. That's part of God's character eclipsing Ruth. You guys guys think, well, I didn't know that God could be humble. Um, Passage of Philippians chapter 2. You can look it up later on. Philippians chapter 2. Paul is writing to the Philippians and he said, have the same attitude toward toward yourselves that Jesus Christ had toward you. And he says, he says, Jesus Christ abandoned all self-interest. And he hung on a cross and he died for the sins of humanity. And he was saying, have that same humility and demonstrate that to one another, he says. And you, you, you'll become a city changer. 
Heroes are people who forget about themselves because they've been so liberated by a consuming vision for God, a consuming affection for God, a consuming love for God, that his character, his graciousness, his humility, his generosity, his love has eclipsed their own. These are the kinds of people that God uses. These are the kind of people whom he works through. Regardless how deep the crisis, Evansville is in spiritual crisis. And Evansville as a city needs people who are so consumed by, the, by their affection for God that they've simply forgotten about themselves. And Evansville needs people through whom God's character is seen. Now the question, the obvious question is, well, how do you develop that kind of an affection for God? How did Boaz and Ruth develop that? Look, I, I, don't, I don't really know. The text doesn't tell us exactly how they developed that. I imagine that it came abstractly for them by hearing and meditating on the law of God and they heard the beauty of God's character in that law as compared to their own backgrounds and as compared to their own culture. And, you know, they, they fell in love with him. They saw his beauty and his character. Like, you know, when I bought, when I bought um, Amy's engagement ring, I went to this jeweler who, who brought out diamonds and she, she had this piece of black velvet that she put all the diamonds against. And every one of those diamonds against that black piece of cloth just sparkled. I mean, just sparkled. And my guess is that Boaz and Ruth, as they compared God's law, his beauty to the culture in which they lived, uh, perhaps the gods that they worshipped, the way things were done in their cultures, that they said, oh, he's so beautiful, I would like to know him. And so by, in, in sort of an abstract way, they came to know the beauty of God and they fell in love with him. Here's the news. Here's the good news for you and I. We don't have to rely on an abstraction We can look concretely at God as he hangs on a cross. And there as he hangs on this, in the bleakness of this Roman crucifixion, we get to see this God who was willing to become weak so that we could become strong, who was willing to become sin so that we could be saved, who was willing to die so that we could live. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been loved like that? Could you ever imagine, in your own mind, could you have ever come up with a God who would be willing to do that for you? Let me tell you that the answer to that is no. That's why Christianity is different from every other world religion. If you notice in every other world religion, there is a God whose favor you must earn by the things that you do. But in Christianity, in Christianity alone, that God says, I'll come to you. I'll do for you what you could never do for me. And he hangs on a cross, sacrifices himself, sheds his blood. His body is broken. So that you can have a relationship with him and he can have a relationship with you. Have you ever been, have you ever seen anything so beautiful and so dreadful all at the same time? Look at the cross. You want to develop that kind of an affection for God that causes you to forget about yourself and that just begins to eclipse your character? Look at the cross. 
And over time, as you continue to look at the cross, you will find the more you meditate and the more you think about and the more you study and the more you examine the cross of Jesus Christ, you will find that you will become less and less and less consumed with yourself. And you will find that you will become more and more and more in love with the ultimate hero of the world, Jesus the Messiah. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, we ask the same question that Ruth asked Boaz in this passage. Why should we find such favor in your eyes? We have no idea what to do with this kind of love. We have never been loved in this, with this kind of love. We've never seen that kind of beauty. Lord, I pray that I pray that we would become consumed with an affection for you that causes us to just forget about ourselves. And we, I pray, Lord, that we, like Paul, would be able to say, I no longer live. Uh, Christ lives in me. Lord, we pray for the city of Evansville and the spiritual crisis that it finds itself in. Lord, would you enable us to be the kind of people who are city changers? Lord, would you use us in our neighborhoods and our families? Would you use us in our workplaces to demonstrate your character to this city? And we pray, Lord, that this city would be changed. We pray for our mayor. Don't know where he is spiritually, Lord. I just pray for him that you would give him much wisdom as he leads this city. But Lord, we pray that we would be the kind of people that permeate this place with the love of Jesus Christ love that he's shown us, that we've become so consumed with that we don't even need to think about ourselves anymore. Lord Jesus, we love you and we worship you.